Morning, everybody, or afternoon. Uh, you will have noticed that the schedule for the summer has changed if you listen to the intro of last week's episode. But if not, I wanted to make sure that everyone knew that. So I have tried to scale it back in the summer just to give a little more time back for my sanity, for my family. But that doesn't mean that big things aren't happening. So way back in the first year of the show, I had a conversation with Dominique Gilliard about a book called Rethinking Incarceration, which is one of the best books I've ever read on that topic. And Dominique's is a voice that I think is powerful, important, and so needs to be heard today, tomorrow, yesterday, and for the years to come. And with just all of the things that are happening, I thought it would be important to re-release this episode for you today. And then a new episode will be out on Monday, uh, which I'm really looking forward to you hearing. Pray that you're blessed. Here's a re-release of this episode. I oftentimes say that part of the reason why the church doesn't care and doesn't know some of the horrifying realities of mass incarceration is we don't know because we don't go. We failed to go be present with Jesus behind bars, and because of that, our faith is impoverished. But it's not just Matthew 25. When you actually look at a text like Hebrews 13:3, it says that we're supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated. And so if we were to take Scripture more seriously, then I think we would understand the urgency of this call to be present behind bars and to care about the systemic injustice that's happening with mass incarceration. Can we just admit together we're not fine? Cause I'm not fine And you're not fine Can we just admit together we're afraid? Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am your host, Seth. To the handful of you that have gone on and rated the show on iTunes, thank you so much. That helps more than you know. Uh, the the Apple overlords have an algorithm, and it, and it likes ratings and reviews. So uh, for those of you listening right now, just hit pause. Take 20 seconds. Go review the show. I will be forever grateful. I would also ask the same thing for those of you, and, and thank those of you that have gone on to Patreon. The, we are uh, slowly but surely gaining steam there, and that will only ensure that the show is able to maintain the status quo and hopefully grow in the future and I am grateful for those of you that have taken the time to do that. I think you're going to like today's episode. So our prisons and the system that we use to get people to prison, I think we can all agree needs to be reformed. And so there was a new book recently released, it's an Amazon bestseller titled Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard and it is well worth your time, it is well written, it is well researched. And so that's the topic of today's episode. I think that you will greatly enjoy it. A look a bit about what the church's role is in incarceration and how we should be involved in that. Dominic, thank you so much for coming on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am excited to talk to you today about the topic because it's not going away. Uh, and before we plug the book, I would I would like it for those that are listening that are unfamiliar with you, if you could just bring us up to speed on what you would have us know about yourself and then dovetail that in with kind of how you got into writing your book and the just the ministry that you're doing. How did you start getting on that path and where has that taken you? Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to join you today. And so my name is Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. I am from Atlanta, the metro Atlanta area. Uh, I grew up in a family where my father worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is an organization that Dr. King founded uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. So I grew up in a household where we have photos of my father with Rosa Parks and uh, civil rights leaders like Hosea Williams. And that was just a part of the culture in which I grew up in. I, growing up in Atlanta, I really grew up in the shadows of Dr. King and his theology ended up being very influential for me and my life trajectory. I, My mom is a pastor 
And so I grew up as a PK and really wrestling with these two these two parts of my identity that were really passed down to me through my parents, this real passion for racial justice and this passion for God. And my life, in a lot of respects, was this way of discerning how God always intended those things to be mutually edifying passions as opposed to isolated rival passions existing in my life. And so I didn't really learn how to harness that until when I was 25, really, um, after I finished my first master's degree, which was in U.S. history with a focus on race, gender, and class, uh, studying in the 18th to 21st century. But that's kind of what kind of led me into the work that I do, but more specifically to writing the book, there was a case that happened that I opened chapter one of the book with in 2006, I was a senior in undergrad at Georgia State University, and there was a case that happened 10 miles away from my college campus where there was a community that was jurisdictively zoned as a no-knock warrant community. And in no-knock warrant communities, officers can invade the premise of a uh, home without having to display a warrant or announce their presence as officers in a way that they would have to do literally in any other community that's not zoned as a no-knock warrant communities. No-knock warrant communities are disproportionately in impoverished communities of color that are stigmatized as drug, uh, drug trafficking communities. And so the logic behind them is that an officer needs to be able to invade the premise so quickly because people can flush drugs down the toilet and get rid of paraphernalia as well. Yeah. And so in this case, one of the officers said that they had been staking out a house for three months, knew that it was the epicenter for drug trafficking. The night of the invasion, that officer and two other officers invaded a home of a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of Catherine Johnston. Uh, they kicked in the doors um, uh, without wearing uniforms and shotguns drawn, ultimately ended up deploying 39 bullets and fatally struck Catherine Johnston five times in her living room. Um, after they killed her, they searched the house and found no drugs, no drug paraphernalia. They freaked out, figured out how do they cover up their transgressions. They decided to conspire and plant drugs throughout her house to make it look like she was actually involved in drug trafficking. The officers stuck to that story all the way throughout the trial until it was found out that they were caught red-handed and they could do nothing. And then they confessed to everything they had done. Yeah. And when they were sentenced, they literally only got a fraction of the time that Katherine Johnston would have gotten if she actually was apprehended and was involved in drug trafficking. And so at that point, my African-American studies professors really implored me and my fellow students to get involved. They said we had an ethical and moral responsibility as concerned citizens to advocate for vulnerable people in communities like Katherine Johnston. And I was like, yes, this is right. This is true. This is good. But then I had to take a step back because my faith community wasn't calling me to the same level of engagement. And I said, if anything should be compelling me to stand up for the rights of the least of these and to defend the humanity of vulnerable people, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ, not my academic institution. Yeah. And so that that really was the, the seed that ultimately prospered and spouted into this book. Yeah. And I will say, so I, I have a copy of your book. I very much enjoyed reading it, and and I'm not the only one. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is it, it is currently a bestseller on Amazon. Yes, correct. And so so to sell four or five more copies, people go buy the book. It's called Rethinking Incarceration: Advocating for Justice That Restores. Um, and so I didn't want to get too far in without mentioning the actual title. But and, and there will be links to that in the show notes. I am curious. So, do you find it hard growing up in the community and the faith? The training that you had, you know, being so involved from a young age, the way that your parents were, do you find it hard when you speak to people that have unknowingly, I, I know so many people that don't know what they don't know until they're old enough to do something about it, and then they're usually in a position that it it's going to affect their friendships or their family relationships or their job, and so they refuse to do anything about it. They're just frozen there. So do you find it hard knowing what you know, being in your ministry, and telling people this, is it is it hard? Yes and no. Um, I'll say no because the reality is that 
because I grew up in this particular community, these kind of conversations were normative to me. But there are other conversations about our faith and my faith maturation that were not normal to me that I didn't learn about until I was older. Um, and I had to expect people to have grace and understanding and patience with me as I learned and matured and developed in my faith in ways that they grew up in where conversations were normal and they're just like, how can anybody not get this? How does this not make sense? And so I I very much understand that process. And so I sympathize with people who this conversation is not a normative one. This was not part of their faith formation or even their academic education. And one of the things that really gives me patience with people is the fact that I understand that most people don't know these realities because of systemic racism that is manifested within our educational system, particularly through history. Um, Most people go to school believing that what they learn in history classes is actually the totality of U.S. history. When we know that history that is disseminated in K through 12 in particular is not a history that's reflective of the contributions of women or people of color. And that continues to reperpetuate itself into graduate and undergraduate education as well. And so I think there is this way in which you can't fault people who actually go to school, truly try and invest themselves in the education that is assigned to them. And then they walk away with these huge glaring blind spots because it's not their fault. It's the system that is actually failed them. And so one of the things I talk about when I talk about systemic racism, that's, you know, systems and institutional, those things can become buzzwords. But one of the most tangible ways is if you actually trace U.S. history and what's actually taught, and then you actually, once you get into a fuller understanding of what U.S. history actually entails, you can see that there's clear decisions being made by people in school boards about what's going to be included in textbooks and what's going to be excluded from textbooks. And given that reality, it's literally setting up people to have these blind spots. And so I have sympathy because I understand why they exist. Yeah. And I spoke with, um, I spoke with Mark Charles not too many weeks ago about that. And the more that I learn things that I should have already known, just the more angry I get. And it reminds me of, I bought an album not long ago. Hopefully you're familiar with them. There's an artist called Propaganda. I can't see how you wouldn't be. He's everywhere. He's got a, he's got a song, uh, Andrew Mandela, where he says, you know, they say you're a hero and they run the schools. It's to basically make making that same correlation of when, when I run the school and I get to write the textbooks, the history is what I say it is. And exactly. you don't know any different because they ain't any other books. These these are yeah. the books that I wrote and that's what it is. So exactly. How is that the role of the school to fix? Or is that is that my job to fix as a parent? Who's how do we fix that? <laughs> um I'd say it's three 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 different entities have responsibilities in this. One, I say it is the role of concerned parents to actually advocate for new curricula within our uh, school boards that get disseminated through our educational system. Our textbooks have to be more reflective of the totality of what encompasses U.S. history. Uh, There's no way For example, that something as prevalent as lynching should not be mentioned within our school books. Um, When we know that from 1877 to 1952, approximately 5,500 African Americans were lynched in our nation, there is no way that something that that was that was so prevalent should be overlooked within our textbooks. Mm -hmm. Another example for me was I didn't learn about the Japanese internment camps until my master's program in U.S. history. That, that is a shame for there to literally be federal legislation that was passed down that um, led to racial targeting than the, you know, basically blatant injustice that ultimately the U.S. Uh, White House ultimately had to apologize for and distribute reparations for. There's no way that that kind of thing should be excluded from textbooks. I learned that just the other day. I was talking with a friend and he was, he's it's a black friend of mine and, and he's like, we should do reparations. Like, I don't understand how we can afford to do that, but fine. He's like, well, we did it for the Japanese. And I was like, no, we didn't. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah we exactly. did. And I researched, I'm like, man, 
Why, uh, why do I keep not knowing these things? These, these are what? some of these people are still alive. How do I not? Yeah. Uh, but we're getting. I, I'd hate and, to get on the reparations, I, but yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, let me. I want to finish answering your question because I think it's a critical question. So I think parents politically must mobilize and advocate for reform within our school system. Two, as a parent, you do have a responsibility, particularly as somebody like yourself who's coming into a revelation of these things, to actually say, in the midst of us advocating, we still have to work with the system that we have. And so I have to speak truth into the blind spots that the system is reperpetuating for my students and my, I mean, for my children and other children in this community. And then lastly, I'll say the church has a moral and ethical responsibility. And so I think about the passage that talks about how we are called to give sight to the blind. And I think literally a lot of people have translated that by saying, you know, we're supposed to be going and, you know, laying hands on people and physically giving them sight like we see Jesus do in the text. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but I think another way that that passage is actually speaking to us is when we take a sober look at our society and we see the ways in which it's re-perpetuating blindness, the church has a moral and ethical responsibility to actually start to speak truth into those sections of society and actually um, bear witness to the truth in a way that allows us to actually exist and function in the world as more faithful ambassadors of reconciliation and truth and justice. And so in the midst of us knowing that our school systems are inherently racist in what they're producing um, as U.S. history, and it's actually not the full narrative, the church has an ethical and moral responsibility to actually educate our members on a more faithful telling of history so that when we actually participate in the world, we can participate as informed citizens citizens who are actually literally leveraging our access, our social capital, and our um, platforms for justice in a way that makes racial reconciliation a much more tangible reality, as opposed to this abstract notion that we kind of leave up in the air and say, well, you know, God will take care of it. Right. Well, that's that's the easy answer. Um, that's, yeah. that's the answer you hear on uh, thoughts and prayers for whatever the problem is. So yeah. what is, why should the church care about incarceration? Why should the church be involved in worrying about how people are in jail? Why, why should that matter? Yeah, there's a number of answers to that question. I think first, I think Christians need to understand how inherently connected the scriptures are to incarceration. Most people really have failed to grapple with the fact that four of the books of our Bible were written in the midst of incarceration. And literally, we only have the book of Colossians because one of Paul's uh, disciples came back and forth and actually visited him while he's in prison consistently, where Paul was actually pastoring the church in uh, Colossians into faithfulness and because they were backsliding. And in the midst of their backsliding, Paul is actually writing letters back and forth to them, pastoring the pastors of the church back into faithfulness, back into an orthodox understanding of who God was and what it meant to bear witness to our faith in the world. So that's one reason. But I think the other reason is that if we take Scripture seriously, Matthew 25 is very blunt about the fact that Christians have an ethical and moral responsibility to be present behind bars. It says that we are supposed to visit the prisoner, and Jesus cares so much about that that he says that it's not only when you do that, you didn't just do it to the least of these, it's you, but you did it to me. And so I think... I oftentimes say that part of the reason why the church doesn't care and doesn't know some of the horrifying realities of mass incarceration is we don't know because we don't go. We fail to go be present with Jesus behind bars, and because of that, our faith is impoverished. But it's not just Matthew 25. When you actually look at a text like Hebrews 13:3, it says that we're supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated. And so if we were to take Scripture more seriously, then I think we would understand the urgency of this call to be present behind bars and to care about the systemic injustice that's happening with mass incarceration. But the very last point I'll close on is, the blunt reality is literally, if it were not for criminals, we would not have a Bible. There literally would be no gospel to 
to possess and to pass on. I mean, literally, if you take everybody in Scripture who is a criminal out of the text, there is no Bible. So, you know, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Samson, Hananiah the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, like there literally is no Bible without criminals. And so I think if we were to press into this reality and actually understand the inherent connections between incarceration and scripture, then I think we would understand in deeper ways why we are called to care about this. But then lastly, you know, scripture consistently tells us to care about the least of these and society's most vulnerable. And when you actually drill down and ask hard questions about who is incarcerated, you see that today who is incarcerated in our nation is society's most vulnerable. What do you mean? So when you say that, and, I, and I've read that often in your book, and so can you, and everyone throws around the word, or you'll see it on CNN or Fox or anywhere else. So when we mean, when you say mass incarceration and, and that those that are being affected, what specifically do you mean by mass incarceration? And then what do you mean by the people that are being targeted are the most vulnerable? What, be spe- yeah. what specific are you getting at? So I'll I'll use partial, partially Michelle Alexander's definition for this. She says mass incarceration is a massive system of racial and social control. It is the process by which people are swept into the criminal justice system, branded criminals and felons, locked up for longer periods of time than most other countries in the world who incarcerate people who have been convicted of crimes and then released into a permanent second-class status in which they are stripped of basic civil and human rights like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the rights to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, and access to public benefits. But I would also add on to that mass incarceration has evolved into a lucrative industry where people who are incarcerated are being exploited for their labor due to the loophole in the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery except for as a punishment for crime. And in that loophole, we are seeing people being exploited for their labor in ways that are becoming extremely lucrative for companies, industries, and investors. Most people don't realize that private prisons are one of the most bought and sold stocks on Wall Street. And after the new administration was appointed, one of the head um, leaders of, one of the executive leaders of Southern Trust Bank said that without question, private prisons will be one of the top five most lucrative investments that people can make on Wall Street within the next four years. And so that, what Michelle Alexander says, plus the exploitative nature of commerce um, that happens and transpires behind bars is what I am talking about when I talk about mass incarceration. And to give you a very quick example of this, um, a lot of people are familiar with the California wildfires that happen basically every summer. Mm Mm-hmm. And when the wildfires take place, to actually pay a trained professional who has um, been trained to put out wildfires, it costs $27 an hour for their labor. What most people don't know is that there are thousands of um, incarcerated people who are taken out of prison and actually forced to fight wildfires, and they get a total of $2 a day for their labor. And so people are cutting corners to actually generate massive economic benefits for the ways that they're using and exploiting prisoners for their labor. So we will, we will add that to another thing that I'm now angry about that I didn't know 20 minutes ago. Um, where And so a lot of the pushback I get on this show is if people don't like what's being said, I hear that I don't, I don't provide concrete examples. And so if I was to Google that, that would be something that I can, that I can easily find or is it, is it shelved? Is it something you have to know where to look to find stories like that? Um, there, if you Google prison labor, there are easy, it's easily Google, Google, okay. <laughs> um, that particular story, if you Google, uh, California wildfires, prisoners fighting California wildfires, it'll pop up, man. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. in and as soon as we're done recording this, so, cause I, I, I need to know more about that just cause I feel like I do. So, so you're saying then that that America's prison system may as well be 
the S&P 500, but people are the commodities as opposed to Coca-Cola or, I don't know, bread. Yeah, and so part of what really distinguishes my book from Michelle Alexander's and uh, even Brian Stevenson's great book, The Just Mercy, is that they really talk about um, um, mass incarceration being funneled and sustained through the war on drugs. And yes, the war on drugs is a major conduit that is pumping people into our system, but I actually say that there are four other conduits that are uh, pumping people into incarceration. So the four other ones are the school to prison pipeline, which a number of people are a little bit of familiar with, but I really talk about the school to prison pipeline as something that traces the well-worn path of predominantly impoverished urban youth of color from decrepit, underfunded, antiquated schools to luxurious, earmarked, state-of-the-art prisons. Um, the school-to-prison pipeline illuminates the detrimental impact of zero-tolerance policies and highlights how these policies are exacerbated by a disproportionate way in which they're enforced based off uh, racial and economic lines. And so within the school-to-prison pipeline, we see that disproportionately students of color and students who have endured trauma um, or students who are impoverished like homeless youth, um, youth who come out of the foster care system disproportionately um, get caught up in a system where historically juvenile mischief that happens in school would have been handled in-house through in-house suspension or in, um, in school uh, discipline. Those disciplines have been increasingly outsourced um, and are now being controlled by law enforcement officers who function as school resource officers. And they're leading to a disproportionate number of students getting caught up in the system. And disproportionately, we see that black, brown, and Native American students are receiving the harshest disciplines. Um, The other pipelines um, are the more, the three other pipelines I talk about are the most overlooked ones. We have the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities that has led to mental health being a fundamental pipeline that are funneling people into incarceration to the point that right now we have 44 states plus the District of Columbia who have more people with severely diagnosed mental illnesses who are incarcerated than who are receiving treatment in the state's largest facility. To the point that Right now, we have 90,000 people every single year who are legally designated as incompetent to stand trial, which means they literally can't comprehend why they're being arrested, but yet they're still being arrested. Hmm. This has become such a problem within our nation that medical professionals in this field have bluntly said that prisons are the new asylum in our nation. So literally, this is where we're warehousing people with severely diagnosed mental illnesses. Um, The other pipeline is that uh, the privatization of prisons, most people don't understand that private prisons are really just a new reality that came on the scene in 1984. Um, And they literally only exist because we ran out of space space within our state and federal facilities to incarcerate people. We came into an awareness around 1980 that this was going to be a problem. And at that point, we had the chance to embrace diversion programs or look at resentencing and particularly look at how we can uh, minimize some of this exacerbated sentences for drug crimes, nonviolent drug crimes. But instead of doing that, we decided to outsource the building of prisons to a third party um, entity. And since then, uh, we've seen the growth of private prisons to the point that right now in our nation, we have more prisons, jails and detention centers in our nation than we do degree granting institutions. And there's a lot of colleges. There's, there's, There's a lot of colleges. And because of that, in many states, there are more people who are living behind bars than are living on college campuses. And then the final pipeline is what I call uh, the pipeline that I say really parallels the war on drugs, and it is the uh, war on immigration. We just yet to coin that phrase. We don't call it a war yet, but we know that since 1990, from 1998 to 2011, there was a hundred and 45% increase in the number of immigration arrests. 
And so we see that this has evolved into this pipeline, and that pipeline is directly connected to the private prison pipeline because 90% of people who are arrested on immigration offenses are detained within private facilities. Most people would be shocked to realize that in 2010, there was an immigration bad mandate that was introduced by a Democrat. And I think that's important because sometimes we can fall into these partisan politics and say, oh, the Republicans are the problems for this. Mass incarceration is a bipartisan agenda. It is something that both parties have used for political expediency and both parties have used get tough on crime, law and order rhetoric to really further their own personal agendas. But in this, we see that Robert Byrd, a Democrat, in 2010 introduced a bad mandate that said ICE must keep on average an average of 34,000 people detained every night for immigration offenses. And so if I don't have 34,000, what happens? I, I just got to go find somebody? That's what it would lead you to believe in that in that way. Um, but I think more specifically than the national, what the way that what you just said plays out is on the local level. So when private prisons come into a community, most people don't understand how private prisons function. Private prisons really function like hotels. So if you own a hotel, literally every night that you have a, a room open, you lose money for that room. Private prisons function the same way in that every night that there is a cell open, they actually lose money um, as a business. And so what private prisons do is when they come into a community, which are usually sparsely populated rural communities that are socioeconomically deprived and they need jobs, they come in promising job security and economic investment. But within that promise, they make the community sign up for a 10-year contract. And within that contract, there's a bed occupancy rate that is required every night. And so that rate for contracts in private prisons ranges from 70% occupancy to 100% occupancy. So the state of Arizona is the most uh, grievous offender in this regard. They have three private prisons in the state of Arizona that require 100% bed occupancy rates every single night. So if every single night those beds are not 100% full, uh, the private prison can literally sue the community. And in my book, I actually talk about an instance where a private prison sued the community and the community because they didn't keep the bed occupancy rates at what they signed up for and the community had to pay at the private prison. Can we just admit together we have failed? Because I have failed. And you have failed Can we just admit That our hands aren't clean And our hearts aren't clean And they'll never be Until we're freed And mercy sings I have a friend that is a prosecutor, and so I asked him a few questions. Um, yeah. And I don't want to say his name just because you never know who's yeah. listening. So he, <laughs> and so I called him actually yesterday. I was like, hey, I'm going to talk to a gentleman that is well-educated as, as a minister and the history of incarceration and, and everything else. I said, so you as a Christian, what do you struggle with? And so these were some of his questions. He said, so every time he goes to a prison, there is no shortage of Christians trying to get into the prison to minister. And I imagine that's because it sounds like that's where the people are, um, if, if they're full and they're having to be full to make money. So how do you do, what, what am I trying to do when I get in there? Because from what I understand from him, racism is quasi talked about, quote unquote, you know, in the workplace, at school, in our communities. But he's like, when you get on the inside, you don't hang out with black people if you're not black or you're going to have a problem. And if you are in that, you know, if you're if you're inter integrating in a different way, then you were looked at as the as the female or you know the outcast of that group. And so, when Christians go into a prison and they want to minister to those that are there, 
for whatever reason they're there, if they just had the wrong amount of weed and now we're here for 15 years, what should be our role? What are we trying to achieve when we're there? So I would say that that his his experience is, is true in certain prisons, but there are other prisons and jails where there are not Christians beating down their doors to get in. Um, there are definitely, and I've worked in, uh, ministered in some of these prisons where uh, there are actually some organizations that have actually documented that there are a number of facilities that have absolutely no Christian presence in them, particularly our juvenile justice facilities. And so there are some organizations that are actually literally mapping out where those facilities are, and they're actually trying to recruit Christians to come and bear witness in those spaces. So that would be the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing I would say is that... When we are there, what we're actually trying to do is we're trying to do holistic ministry. And so as an evangelical, I would say one of the historic failures for evangelical prison ministry is that we've gone in and what we've been trying to do is make conversions. And after a person converts, we literally move on to the next person and try to get another convert. And so we actually have seen jails and prisons as evangelistic um, opportunities for us to just increase the number of people who proclaim Christ, but we have not done discipleship with those people. Um, and so I can't tell you the number of people who I've encountered who talk about, oh, Christians were so eager to come here and actually share about Jesus. And as soon as I gave my life to Christ, I barely saw them anymore because they were so busy going on to the next heathen who needed mm -hmm. to know, come to know God. And then they say the other thing that happens is even if they did continue to come and see me, they said, as soon as I was released from jail, there were nowhere to be found. And he said, you had all these people who were so eager. They'd come every Wednesday night. They'd be faithful people. But as soon as you're released, there's no one who's willing to walk alongside of you, take you in and actually do life with you you and love you in authentic ways and not just try to love you from a distance. And so part of what I think has been the problem is that for far too many Christians, we see people who are, we see prisons and jails as the spaces where God is not and that we are coming to bring God to those places. But the reality is that God is already present behind the prisons and behind jail walls, and we're just joining with what God is already doing. But I think that's critical because it changes our entire posture of how we go in and what we are tending to achieve when we go in. But I think the other thing I'll just say is going back to the holistic ministry, if we're really trying to learn how to do discipleship with people who are incarcerated, it requires us actually understanding some of the systemic institutional uh, things that led them into incarceration and also some of the, the scarring and the trauma that people have endured both before they were incarcerated and in the midst of their incarceration. And so we're going to be faithful witnesses, but we're also going to learn about the circumstances about what's going on behind bars so we can come out in the world and actually bear witness to it uh, to help our brothers and sisters who aren't present behind bars to understand the dehumanization uh, that is happening on an everyday basis behind bars. And so, for example of that, I like to talk about solitary confinement. Most people don't understand within solitary confinement, people are oftentimes locked in a cell that can be either five by seven or a seven by 12. And they're literally locked into a cell in darkness for 23 of the 24 hours of a day, given access to human contact and sunlight for one hour a day. And that is not incarceration, that is torture, particularly when solitary confinement can last anywhere from a week to some people are in there for years. And when you're in there for more than three months, neuroscientists have actually said that they start to literally dehumanize you in a way cognitively that has irreversible impacts. But we continue to practice that as a form of incarceration in our nation. We need more Christians who know that, who see that, who can come and actually raise awareness around those kind of civil rights violations that are happening behind bars so that the church can understand its role and its witness in this critical moment of mass incarceration today. Yeah. Well, I actually, that is actually my next question. So how do we honor, how do we honor the law, the rules that we all are supposed to follow 
but at the same time as a church or as Christians challenge injustice in sentencing, you know, be that mandatory minimums or solitary confinement, or my friend said that basically a lot of people that go to jail do it because they don't think about their decisions five minutes past right now, that I just needed that, I don't know why I did it, it was a momentary lapse, but now I've got to pay this punishment. And so how how should how should the church stand against injustice, but at the same time, live under the law? Yeah. So I think first we have to understand the depth of the injustice that is present within our present system. So for example, most Christians would be shocked to find out that one in 25 people who are sentenced to the death penalty in our nation are actually innocent. Um, And in spite of knowing that, we continue to cling to the death penalty as this archaic manifestation of justice, when in particular as Christians, you would think that as people whose faith revolves around the person of Jesus Christ, who himself was falsely incarcerated and put to death by the state, that we think differently about capital punishment than we do. But the statistics actually show that we don't. Um, But that's, that's one thing. But I think also understand uh, things like the historic discrepancy between sentencing for crack and powder cocaine. And so before 20, 2010, for the exact same amount of powder and the exact same amount of crack, um, a, the person who had crack cocaine would receive 100 times more severe punishment and sentencing than the person who had powder. Historically, we know that crack cocaine is used by black and brown people and powder cocaine is disproportionately used by Caucasians. Um, And so in 2010, they finally said, okay, this is a gross injustice. We're actually going to systemically change the law. And so they they said they changed the law and did justice, quote unquote, by reducing this discrepancy from 101 to 18 to 1. But it's still a huge disparity, even though crack and powder have the exact same impacts on us. And so it just leads to these racial disparities that we see in our system. So right now we know that black men represent 6.5% of the U.S. population, but they represent 40.2% of the incarcerated population. There's a part of um, me, it, the banker part of me, that thinks, why even bother? If 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 one, And we'll just make the math easy. So if, if I, as using powder, get one year, and my brother, as using the rocks, gets 100 years, what does it matter if he instead gets 18 years and I still just get one year? Like, if you're not going to actually fix it, why even exactly. Why even do it? What's it matter? Exactly. 18 or 100, either way, my kids have gotten married and I missed it, or my parents have died, or, you know, there's been four presidents, or it, there's so much that changes. What I don't know what the difference between 18 to 100 years is. I mean, that's still a long time. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we just have to also listen to medical professionals. Um, and so medical professionals and a number of police chiefs have come out and blatantly said that the war on drugs was a massive failure and we cannot incarcerate ourselves out of this problem. We are incarcerating people who have chemical dependencies who need medical interventions and not incarceration. And so one of the ways, that one of the most tangible ways that the church can actually advocate for reform within the system while abiding by the law is actually taking a sober look at who's incarcerated and what they're incarcerated for. Whenever we hear a lot of the law and order rhetoric and we hear get tough on crime and we hear uh, policies like three strikes you're out and zero tolerance, the politicians are really propagating this fear about the incarcerated, but they're doing it in connection to violent crimes. But disproportionately, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in our nation are incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. And so I think we need to force our politicians to have a more honest conversation about who is actually incarcerated and what that rhetoric of fear is actually um, leading us to support legislatively. And as Christians in particular, I think we have to ask real questions about what is justice, because right now our criminal justice system says that justice has been manifested once a punishment has been distributed. But when we actually look at scripture, that's not how justice is defined. Justice is not about the distribution of punishment. Um, And so we need to ask better questions about what justice is from a biblical perspective. And I think the Bible constantly reveals that restoration, not punitiveness, is at the heart of God's justice. 
divine justice is restorative and reconciling, not retributive and isolating. Um, the restorative nature of God's justice is woven, woven throughout Scripture. And biblically, we see that God works amid brokenness, restoring victims, communities, and defenders. And so a big part of what I'm advocating for is a, a divorce from punitive understandings of justice and actually rerooting ourselves in the biblical text where we will see that restorative justice is actually a more accurate uh, manifestation of justice that we see throughout the scriptures. And we see that God is actually um, inherent within God's justice is a plan for the reconciliation of the victim and the offender. And ultimately, through account relationships of accountability, those who've gone astray, who violated the confines of covenant community, are actually walked through a plan of accountability where they're ultimately reoriented into society. And so instead of supporting a system that merely punishes, Christians must pursue a justice system that rebuilds community, affirms human dignity, and seeks God's shalom. The church has the power to help transform our criminal justice system. If, But if reconciled communities are ever to become the true aim of our justice system, the church must lead the way in advocating for a system that gives opportunities for authentic rehabilitation, lasting transformation, and healthy reintegration. I always say that we are not called, we are not all called to the same thing, but we are all called to something. Every yeah. congregation has a role to play. Yeah. And is that what you're getting at in your book when you talk about reparative justice? Yeah, well, the whole reparative justice, I'm trying to help people understand that there are these different ways in which we need to nuance this conversation about justice um, and ultimately under breaking it down into reparative justice helps us to understand biblically how restorative justice is such a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And I actually walk people through about four different cases where we actually see Christians have the opportunity, or followers of Christ, because um, somebody tried to cr critique me for using the word Christian because they said Christians died in the Bible. So uh, for followers of Christ, <laughs> so they, they, they wanted they wanted to crit critique you as semantics. That those always yeah, that, that always goes well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so followers of Christ throughout Scripture, we see that there's opportunities where the Scriptures actually depict a situation where they can um, embrace a punitive notion of justice, or they can follow Christ and embrace a restorative manifestation of justice. So a perfect example of this I like to talk about is in the Scriptures where we see Jesus um, brought in in the situation with the adulterous woman. And in that passage, literally, the the law requires bloodshed. The law required her to be stoned to death. That's what the law said. But in the face of that law, when Jesus is brought in, Jesus actually offers her grace where the law said the bloodshed was required. Jesus says that anybody who um, is sinless should actually cast the first stone. And I think what deep Jesus is getting at here is this deeper question of, as Christians, we must understand that we are only Christians through grace. Um, scripture tells us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died on the cross for us. And that while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. And so Jesus didn't wait to, for us to get our act together, for us to get personal responsibility right. Jesus intervened for us um, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of us actually violating God's law. And so I make the argument that as Christians, when we don't extend that grace to others that was first extended to us, we forget who we are and whose we are. And when we do that, we are more likely to embrace punitive responses to justice, um, law and order, get tough on crime rhetoric. Um, it moves us politically to support um, policies that really become a hindrance for people who have gone to jail, who served their time, who've learned their lessons, and who are trying to come out and actually have a second chance at life. The policies that we support and embrace actually become stumbling blocks for those our brothers and sisters who come to know God behind bars. And I want to end on this question, but it is a tough question, or at least it seems tough to me. It may be it may be an easy question. We'll find out. So I I firmly believe that that evil obviously does exist. And then yep. I read you a little bit from your book, and and then I'll dovetail the question off that. So you say towards the tail end that that God's justice is not soft on crime, 
but it's also not marginalizing, dehumanizing, or retaliatory. And so how do we deal then thinking of God's justice that way and the way our penal system is set up with people that are just inherently bad? And and I don't have any people outside of like, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmers or that type of people, people that just do bad things and seem to relish in it. And and I've I've talked with attorneys that say, no, you know, you can smell it in the air. Like they are excited that they did it and they have no remorse, don't even care that they did it. It's like that's what they were born to do. So how do we deal with that kind of evil as a Christian and 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 hope for justice? Like how do how do we deal with that when we do when we do sentencing? How I don't even know. I don't it's just a big question. Yeah. Well, I think I think circumstances like that, which are which are more of the rarity than the norm. I right. think that's important right. for us to note. Um, I think questions like that and instances like that really press us as Christians to really wrestle with what we truly believe. So every week at church, we sing songs, pray prayers, and read scriptures that bear witness to the fact that we say we believe that no one is beyond redemption, that no one is so far away from God that they can't actually be reconciled to God. Um, And so I think it really presses us to believe, do we really believe that no crime actually separates people so far from God that they can't be reconciled, Um, that no person is actually irredeemable? And if we do, in fact, believe that, then I think it forces us to even have a humane way in which we respond to the most grotesque violations. Um, But And so one of the things I say is I think we need to have a real honest conversation about the fact that we need to start having nuanced conversations about offenses to the point that we talk about nonviolent offenses and violent offenses in very different ways. But I think in the midst of separating them in those ways, restorative justice still provides us an avenue and a framework to think about incarceration in more humane ways. And so restorative justice says that a crime is never a violation against just an individual. Crime always has communal impacts. And so because of that, right now our prison, our criminal justice system literally mutes the victim. So the victim has no say in what um, what punishment should look like, about what reintegration or restoration or reconciliation should look like. So restorative justice says that that system in and of itself is incapable of producing justice or reconciliation. Uh, And because of that, restorative justice says that any real accounting for or any real engagement of justice in our world where there is a situation where there is a victim and offender there must be a safe enough space that's created where the victim ultimately gets to a healthy enough place where they're willing and desire to confront the victim, I mean, the offender, and they actually get to speak directly to the offender and actually help them understand the magnitude of their sin and the magnitude of their offense. And in that, we've actually seen that restorative justice is not just some philosophy, but it's been tried and true internationally and been proven to actually manifest reconciliation in a more uh, appropriate way and more likely way than our present system does. And so restorative justice was used in South Africa after the genocide, um, and it was it played a huge part in the Truth and Reconciliation series. Restorative justice has been tried and true in these kind of grotesque situations that you're talking about, um, where there have been grievous harms. And in those instances, the ability for the victim to actually speak directly to the offender and help the offender to understand the depth of their crime and how it has impacted not only their lives, but the lives of the community has been proven to have some kind of transformative power um, that is unique to this philosophy or in this kind of way of responding to injustice. And so is it going to save everybody? No. There are certain people who are just lost, certain people who um, don't find their way back from the darkness, but restorative justice and this ability for the victim to speak directly to the offender has been proven to be a way to soften hearts in a way that people that we thought were 
irredeemable actually were able to hear something that resonated, that pierced their soul, that softened their hearts and opened them up to transformation. And if our criminal justice system really is about healthy reintegration and rehabilitation, we have to do everything that we can to provide a true opportunity for reconciliation to take place. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So we have we have actually I have many more questions and we have no more time and so I want I want to give you the final word so where would you point people to get engaged uh, to support this kind of ministry and to honestly wrestle with our own pride and our own fear of things that disgust us or that we hold contemptuous. A lot of what you said resonates with a book that I read earlier in the year uh, with Richard Beck called Stranger God where you just have to wrestle with things that make you uncomfortable, but it, it, it goes with Matthew 25 quite well. So what would be a final, a final word for those that are listening that, that hear this and they, they feel like they want to try to do something as opposed to sitting there doing exactly the same thing they did yesterday? Yeah, I would say that one of the things is that we really have to wrestle with this notion of meritocracy, this this worldview that we are really brought into in this nation, that you get what you deserve. Um, as Christians, if anybody should understand the flaws in that worldview, it should be us, because we all know that we're sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we were really to get what we deserve, it would be eternal separation from God because of our sinfulness. And so if we can't um, embrace a meritocratic worldview, then what are we to embrace? And I have a whole chapter that really breaks this down, but I think one of the the things that we need to understand is meritocracy really leads us into this this very um this very unhealthy way of seeing the world in us and them circumstances in regards to this conversation. And so we start to think of criminals as people that we must keep over there, quarantined away from us and our communities and our children to keep them safe. Um, and in that it starts to lead us into embracing things that would always be okay for them, but never be okay for us. And it is this real unbiblical way of interacting in the world that leads us astray. And so what I would first say, um, the last chapter of my book is all about places and organizations and entities that are doing it the right way. And so I don't want people to think that I just leave you hopeless. Um, <laughs> I, I, I point out a lot of places that are doing it right. And I'll, I'll end with one that I'm a, I'm, I'm a part of. And so there are a number of seminaries who are actually realizing the grotesque injustices that are happening in behind bars, and they're actually looking at and embracing higher education as a form of reparations for people who have been wronged and dehumanized and stripped of civil liberties behind bars and who, and oftentimes, particularly who have been charged with felonies, will have to bear the scarlet letter of incarceration for the rest of their life, which will forever uh, prohibit them from receiving any kind of governmental aid and subsidies so they can't get scholarships to go to college, uh, they can't get on food stamps, they can't live in governmentally um, subsidized housing, any of those kind of things. And so there's a number of seminaries who actually decided <coughs> that they're going to go behind bars and they're going to actually offer seminary level education for the incarcerated. And what they found is that this kind of education has been very transformative for these men, um, mostly men, but sometimes men and women. But most of these programs are in male facilities, um, particularly the one I'm a part of through North Park Theological Seminary. So we go into a seminary called Stateville Prison, and we actually cultivate classrooms where half of the classroom is incarcerated men who have life sentences and half of the classroom are seminarians. And we do life together. And through doing life together and doing education together, people are 
forced to acknowledge and confront some of their presuppositions about the other. And they're forced to ask themselves really hard questions about how did I start to think about the incarcerated in this way? How have I subtly but surely dehumanized them and actually seen them as these people who are, you know, irredeemable, these people who are so other than me? And they really come to learn that most of these people are just like you and me. Uh, Most of these people are people who just had a bad break in life, were um, subjected to um, trauma or some kind of some kind of violent situation where they led them to make bad choices um, and they just weren't raised in a loving atmosphere that helped them realize that there were other options. And I think one of the most restorative pieces about it is that it's also helped a lot of people realize that if we want to be honest, most of us have broken the law at some point in our lifetime. Um, Even if not as adults through traffic violations or be it whatever, when we're younger in our youth, a lot of people experimented with drugs. A lot of people did all these other things. And it was just by the grace of God that we weren't caught and we weren't caught up in this system and incarcerated. And so I think it's been really humbling to actually have a lot of these people, these seminarians, uh, hear face-to-face from the men why they were incarcerated and then be able to look back on their lives in a sober way and say, you know what, I actually did that exact same thing. I just wasn't caught. I just wasn't living in a community that was targeted in the same way as yours was. And so I was more likely to get away with my um, my law breaking than you were. And so those kind of things. And so I think one of the cool things about our program is anybody who's interested in it can apply. And it's a certificate program. It's a two-year program where you can come and you take one course a semester uh, over the course of two years and you can come and you can be transformed by doing life together and communing with scandalized people, um, people that you're taught to never want to be with. But I think it's so powerful that throughout the scriptures, we actually see that form of illicit communion, that's that form of um, scandalized communion is oftentimes the communion that God uses to help us to have a deeper revelation of what the gospel is actually about. Um, it helps us to have a fuller understanding of how God is at work in the world and in places and spaces that we would never think that the gospel is exploding and flourishing and bearing fruit, we would actually see how God is at work in that way. And so to close with this story, one of the things I close in the um, final chapter is I talk about how often we think of the incarcerated as these people who are so far away from God, but the actual opposite is so true in so many instances. So I actually talk about how there are so many people who are behind bars who are actually come to know Christ, and they're actively people behind bars who are disciples who are making other disciples, people who are bringing people to Christ behind bars, people who are actually serving as prison chap- uh, prison ministers and pastors to the point that some of them are growing so steadfast in their faith that they're literally being transported from one prison to another prison as a prison missionary to do church plants in other prisons that don't have churches. And, you know, most Christians would be like, what? (laughs) Like, I've never, I couldn't even fathom something like that. And so I just think it just bears witness to how good God is, how true God is, and how often God is flourishing and showing up in spaces that we would never expect God to be at work in. Yeah, yeah. For those listening, go go and buy the book. It's not an accident that it's a bestseller. It's it's a good (laughs) book. And, and, And I will say this, I've never had someone come on and tell me about the the last chapter. I almost never try to talk about it on purpose. So I will say the last chapter, there is quite a few places that you can get involved. And and my hope is that after you hear this and after you wrestle with this, and and I will tell you, it it personally is a struggle to wrestle with this as a middle-class American that believes that I have to be right part of that's just because I want to be to, to deal with this. And so I, I, Dominic, I appreciate what you're doing and I, uh, mm. and very much appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about it. I, I look forward to, to speaking with you another time on a, on, and just as an important topic, but hopefully not one as, as sad. So yeah. 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 Well, good. Well, well, thanks for having me. And 
there are very tangible ways that people can get involved in their local communities. Look up um, people who are doing this work. There are organizations like PICO, People Improving Communities Through Organizing. Uh, there are local organizations like uh, the Ella Baker Foundation out in the Bay Area. Um, there are orgs all across the board who are working um, to over turn this grievous injustice in our nation and the church has to become part of the freedom caravan Mm -hmm. amen well thank you again dominic i appreciate it yeah thank you oh to grace how great a debtor daily i'm come strained to be Let thy Man, that was a lot. If you're like me, you hear that and you see so many things that we could do better. So much education that we could do with our kids. So much of a responsibility that is transferred from the schools to us as parents, to us as ministers, and to us as citizens of America. I am challenged hearing Dominique speak in ways that I can be more involved and in ways that I can get out of my comfort zone to quite literally do the work of reconciliation and what better work could we do i mean if if we're being honest with each other thank you so much for listening today if you didn't at the beginning please go now rate the show on itunes become a supporter on patreon more importantly to continue to grow the show share this with your friends and family put it on facebook i think the conversations that we are all involved in matter more than we know and that the way that we approach our faith matters more for the world and for us than we could ever know. The music that you heard today is from A New Liturgy. A New Liturgy is a project from Aaron Nequist and his friends that is designed to create a movable and sonic sanctuary. I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed listening to their music, especially recently. It is it is spoken to my soul, and to me, music has a way to do that. And their albums have done that. You'll find links to the songs in the show notes. And as always, all of the songs used in today's episode will be on the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist. Thank you again for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Courts above.